Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, starring Marilyn Burns, Paul A. Partain, Edwin Neal, Jim Sedow, Gunnar Hansen, written by Kim Henkel and Toby Hooper, and directed by Toby Hooper. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films. It's time to continue on our new uh, cask of Horror Plus One, and today we're going to be talking about from 1974, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And we have a guest in studio with us again, and he's going to be a familiar voice. Uh, he came on with um, our Raiders of the Lost Ark episode, and then again when we did the whole Star Wars cast. So I'd like to welcome back Mark. Oh, thanks for having me back. Oh, well, you're always you're always welcome back. So The John Goodman of Rice Smile. <laughs> <laughs> Multiple entries. Three, I think you're first. There you go. The Three Timers Club. <laughs> yep. Excellent. I'm, I'm honored. Thank you. Excellent. Well, we got a, a ton to talk about. We just finished watching uh, uh, Texas, I almost said Nightmare on Elm Street, Texas Chainsaw Massacre in the other room. Mark, you said you had never seen this before, so that was like a raw, raw watch for you. It did uh, emphasis on the word raw. Yes. Good. Yes. <laughs> so we talked about it. And Matt, you said you hadn't seen it in probably about 10 years, maybe more. It's longer. I was thinking back. It's all the way back to that. My boyhood friend that we saw. Oh, okay. scary. It's me and him. Excellent. So it's a long time. So we have some more of the Kings Creek uh, sour mash bourbon whiskey, and maybe it's needed after that viewing. So cheers, gentlemen. <laughs> cheers, gentlemen. <laughs> Down there. Still you, a winner. What do you think of that, Mark? Wow, that's smooth. I like it. I find the sour mashes to always be fairly smooth. Um, little hint of sweetness, but uh, very smooth. Excellent. All right, you guys ready to get this started? Smells like gasoline in here now. All right, let's get started with our flight question. Grave robbing in Texas is this hour's top news story. An informant led officers of the Muerto County Sheriff's Department to a cemetery just outside the small rural Texas community of Newt early this morning. Officers there discovered what appeared to be a grisly work of art, the remains of a badly decomposed body wired to a large monument. A second body was found in a ditch near the perimeter of the cemetery. Subsequent investigation has revealed at least a dozen empty crypts, and it's feared war will turn up as the probe continues. Okay, Mark, as you know, this is not your first rodeo, but it is the guest's honor to bring flight questions uh, to the show. So what do you got for us today? So uh, Matt and I were going back and forth on this, and we figured we'd make it uh, a little bit simpler to just say, hey, pick your favorite horror film or the one that scared you the most, whatever, whatever resonates with you from the decade of the 70s, the decade of the 80s, and the decade of the 90s. I love it. Well, you suggest let's do 70s first. Fits perfectly, right? We're doing like <laughs> generational or yeah. a decadal Excellent. horror trope. So Makes yeah. me feel old, but yeah. <laughs> let's start 70s. Go ahead, Matt. Oh, I I tried hard to not do this. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we can talk about how boring it is to say we breathe air, but at some level we have to recognize how necessary that is to survival. Mm -hmm. That being said, as much as I tried and there were some other possibilities, this has to be for me still and only the exorcist. Mm -hmm. Did a whole show on it. I'm not going to rehash that. We've talked about that film at nauseum. 
it's effective and holds the place that it does for strong reason for me. It's still scary. Um, if you want more on that, go back and listen to the other episode. It's The Exorcist yes. for me. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Sorry. I, I wish I had something more creative, Rye Nation. I don't. <laughs> it's just that movie. It's And it's frankly, for me, it's not even close. Yeah. There's some other great, great entries. Yeah. Great entries. Yeah. It's not even close. Yeah. I tried to kind of walk that path too. What do you got, Mark? So, yeah, that, that's a classic film that uh, still haunts me today. Um, so, quick shout out. Um, for me, so 1975, I think my mother took my brothers and I down to Baja, Mexico in an RV with another family, and we would play on the beach, and shark fishermen would come in every day, and they'd toss the, the, the small sharks up on the rocks, and we'd get them and play with them and string them through the water. They were dead, right? Fortunately, she took us to see Jaws after that trip because <laughs> we never would have gone in the water otherwise. And yeah. to, to this day, that, that movie still still haunts me. Uh, whenever I get in the water, uh, I have visions of that. But that's my shout out. Okay. <laughs> so my runner up. So th- there was a movie and, you know, you guys are probably going to hate this, but um, there's a movie I remember watching as a as a kid. It was late night, you know, um, these are the days of Don Kirshner's rock concert and these like horror films are on really late at night. Mm-hmm. There's a movie called B- the blood on Satan's claw. Well, yeah, I, okay. Have you heard of it? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I, I can't tell you about the plot. <laughs> I, you know, all I remember was that movie scared the heck out of me. Cause you didn't see, you know, what evil was mm-hmm. and it was late at night. I was often falling asleep cause I was young. And so that's my, that's my pick. Excellent. Off the beaten path. I love it. I, you know, I thought about I thought I'd about throw a curveball at you, and I thought about <laughs> Jaws too. I mean, that's a film that you know turned an entire generation off of going into the water. There's a I think in Martha's Vineyard or where they filmed uh, Jaws, they do an annual screening like on a lake, like you and it's like a like a drive-in thing, but you're like on an inflatable like tube. I'd love to do that, but like the fear of man, what's in this thing with us? Do they have like, like a fin swimming around? Oh, the lake? I wish. Like, yeah, they'd really have to like milk that. Okay, I'm actually going to go, um, it's hard not to go The Exorcist, and it's hard not to go Jaws, so I'm actually going to go, yeah, it's hard not to go Halloween either. I mean, that's my bread and butter. Oh, for sure. I thought that was going to be where you were going. I'm going to go my other bread and butter, and it's more so, oh. it scares me because of just, it's just the perversion of one of the natural things of, of sex and mm-hmm. and body anatomy, and it's alien. I mean, you're going to give me Rosemary's Baby, and I was about to walk off set. Walk <laughs> off set, yeah. No. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, Alien is, you know, it's it's a slasher in space. It's Jaws in space. I mean, that's how it was pitched as, as a logline. And, you know, from everything to just the looks of the creature, the face hugger, the xenomorph. And like I said, like Dan O'Bannon always said, I'm going to attack the men personally, and I'm going to attack them sexually. So that's, yeah, that's that's kind of hard to stomach when you really dig deep into that film. So... That's my choice. Good choice. Excellent choice. 1980s. This is a strange one for me. I really did try to go with scary. And although there were a lot of terrific, and just going through lists, combing through lists of film after list of film after list of film, like so many great entries and so many great characters, I struggled to find one that truly scared me. And so in 1980, I would have been all of eight, seven. So, I mean, I was young enough to still not be desensitized. And as much as I love Michael and Freddie and Jason and the first nightmare garnered some consideration for me, Mm -hmm. I think I have a proclivity 
to old school haunted house, kind of just the ghost in the darkness in the creepy house. And for me, that then moved me to George C. Scott and the Changeling. Mm -hmm. And maybe not even that whole film, but the last (laughs) third of that film. The last third of the Changeling. Um, you know, I saw that young enough to where it still had an impact. And I lo- like, I love, matter of fact, I watched the the new one last night. I love Fright Night. I mm-hmm. love it. Mm-hmm. I love a lot of vampire stuff. Like, I, that was my first kind of true love with a, with horror, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, but it it's not scary. Yeah. It's fun. That's a fun movie. Nightmare's Close. Yeah. The first one. That's before Freddy got one-linery. And I still love that version of Freddy, too. But the Nightmare Freddy 1 is different than all the other ones. I think we talked about that a lot too. Mm-hmm. It's the changeling. I just I find that film to be terrific. Great choice. Thank you. Great choice, Mark. So, so I thought you were going to pick The Shining, um, and and which still again another film that creeps me out till today. But uh, for me in the eighties, uh, I'm going to go with American Werewolf in London. Um, I, you know, it's it's the horror you don't see, and uh, you know you don't see the wolf till like very late in the movie. And it's the horror you don't see that really scares me, and the combination of horror with some with some good humor. Mm-hmm. You know that was that was new to me at that time, and I, I really like that movie. I think that's the best film that balances horror and comedy together. Before you leave today, I got to go show you my American Werewolf poster because it's awesome. Awesome. Can I, can I take a picture of it? You sure can. Great. Okay. <laughs> Love your choice. Yep. Good one. I actually went with one that I tried to think of films that you know deeply disturbed me that I kind of never want to watch again. And there was one from 1986 that I don't think I could ever really sit down and, and watch it again because of how unrelenting and uncomfortable it is. And that's Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. So this is a kind of a biopic on serial killer Henry Lee Lucas, played by Michael Rooker, of all, of all people, yep. and totally killing it. Yep. But it's like this film, raw, gritty, unrelenting, unforgivable. And I saw it in a psychology of horror class that I took in college. And all the kids in the class were... We're sitting there around the projector and we're just like, my God, like what, like what the heck is this? And it's just, it's not a fun watch. It's one of those, man, I need to go take a shower after I watch that. So that's my choice from the eighties. You, you had a psychology, a horror class. Oh, it, was, it was that's, awesome. That's incredible. It was a great class. Yep. 1990s. This was the hardest decade for me. <laughs> that's funny for as much as I struggled with the eighties, this one was the easiest one for me mm. of the three. It's event horizon. Mm. And also again, mm. not even close that movie scared the piss out of me in the theater. Uh, I'm not one that usually gets super weirded out by science fiction, even science fiction that is attempting to be scary. Like, I love Alien. Don't get me wrong. I love it. Mm-hmm. Again, see the prior, prior, prior episode that we did. It was did high on, on my list. <laughs> yeah. That movie scared the absolute hell out of me. Like, I went home. I kept thinking about it. It stayed with me. That's always a good sign that it really worked for me as if it keeps its presence with me in some proximity past the viewing. That movie did for a while. I still love it today. It's infinitely rewatchable. Sam Neill is terrifying. Essentially, the spaceship that returns from hell and what that brings with it is ghastly. That movie is tragically underrated. If you've never seen it, don't walk, run right now. Go see Event Horizon. We got to do sometime in the future, like a sci-fi horror cast. We'll do like that one and we'll do the thing and like maybe like Invasion of the Body Snatchers or the Fly. Like that sounds Awesome. That'd be a great cast. Yep. Event Horizon. And it was that that one I I played around with some list in the nineties just to see. Again, some some stuff I liked. Yeah. Really likable films, but as much as I 
sort of struggled with the 80s. I didn't in the 90s at all. Great choice. Thanks. What do you got, Mark? Well, you, you know, as we were talking throughout the, the movie we just watched, you know, Silence of the Lambs certainly comes to mind as creepy. I don't know if I would call that horror, but but it's certainly, it's got some elements of mm-hmm. scariness to it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, an evil genius that is somewhat immortal or what. <laughs> yeah. But uh, for me, and I know you guys are going to hate this, <laughs> Blair Witch, uh, Blair Witch Project was, it, it, it and you know, I listened to your podcast on this and all the reasons. Hey, that was a whole year ago already. Mm-hmm. Problems with the plot lines and things wow. like that. But for me at that time, that that was a very novel way to do horror. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very low budget, very novel, and I loved the creativity of it. Yeah. Yeah, and it was it was again the, the demon you can't see or the horror you can't see. Yeah. Very fresh um of its time and the whole marketing element, like really like making those actors go into seclusion, like you're missing because this we're playing this off like this film based on a true story. So Great choice, Mark. You guys are gonna laugh at my my pick, but I like I tried to get to the root of horror. And you said he's like not like your favorite horror, but like what scared you the most? And I remember the sleepover when I watched this film because my buddy Steven fell asleep while watching and I had to finish it by myself. And mm-hmm. I was itching the entire time. The film is Arachnophobia with oh. Jeff Daniels and John Goodman. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> and like, honestly, the thing I'm probably most scared about is spiders. Like, and I had a whole still it, to this day. Yeah, yeah, I had a whole incident with the centipede last week, and it was terrifying. <laughs> An incident. Yeah, and like the one in Mexico, or much less debaucherous. <laughs> yes, yeah, much less debaucherous. <laughs> but it it's was the bottom um, of a mezcal bottle. Or? <laughs> if you hate the creepy crawlies, I mean, that film provides them in space and you, you, you're just itching the entire time. I mean, you're literally looking under the bed, under the covers after you watch something like that. Again, if you're not bothered by spiders, it's not going to affect you as deeply, but that one, I can't watch that movie. Like, And it's good. That's a, that, that's, that's a good um, good movie. But, but like Agreed. Indiana Jones, right? I yep. hate snakes. Those are archetypal fears. Spiders. Yep. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. The rootophobias. Mm-hmm. Great choice. I, yeah. You know who directed that movie? Frank Marshall. That's strange, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, Mr. Producer of Spielberg's films and whatnot. Yeah, that was a very interesting film in the way that it was not only released and marketed, but what the initial reaction was. And it kind of felt, me to me, kind of felt a little bit like them or Mm -hmm. not, because it wasn't out then, but sort of in that Sharknado kind of like, Mm -hmm. and it's absolutely not. Yeah, That is a solid, solid film. Yeah. Horror or otherwise. We we talk about the actors. We talked last week about Gregory Peck. How did, how did he get pitched the omen? Like yeah. how do you pitch Jeff Daniels on like we're gonna have these tarantulas just crawling all over? I'd literally be told that and be like, No, I'm going to do something else. Yeah, pass. <laughs> or pass. <laughs> Gentlemen, I love all your choices. Good choice, guys. Likewise, thank n- you. Nice trips through the decade and ideas of films to cover here in the future. Yep. So let's dive right in. Let's get into the Texas sun, that humidity. Let's, let's bake. Maybe some barbecue waiting for us. And let's, mm, get to our sausage. Re- <laughs> let's get to our review breakdown of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The film which you are about to see is an account of the tragedy which befell a group of five youths. In particular, Sally Hardesty and her invalid brother, Franklin. It is all the more tragic in that they were young. But had they lived very, very long lives, they could not have expected, nor would they have wished to see as much of the mad and macabre as they were to see that day. For them, an idyllic summer afternoon drive became a nightmare. The events of that day were to lead to the discovery of one of the most bizarre crimes in the annals of American history. 
the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. What a way to start the film. So John Larroquette is the one who provides the voiceover, Mr. Nightcourt. <laughs> the biggest star in the film. Yeah, yeah. probably, yeah. And acting wise. And he was unknown at that time. That was his first voiceover acting role. I mean, I think the, the rumor was that he was paid with a, a, a marijuana joint as his <laughs> payment for the film because there was no money. Is that true? <laughs> <laughs> But don't you think, what do you think of the effectiveness of this kind of opening scrawl? Like, I'm, I'm not a big fan of opening crawls, whether it being Star Wars, but to me, this kind of lays the tone of the film in a kind of almost true crime way of the events which you're about to see. Almost like Unsolved Mysteries. Like, this may as well be Robert Stack doing the opening narration. Are you, a, what do you think of this opening kind of beginning? So had this been done before a lot? Uh, that wasn't common, right? Before I don't know, this movie, a lot about like voiceover scrolls, yeah, yeah. You know, you made the Star Wars reference. That's mm -hmm. me. Where my head went. I mean, th this was great because you, you know you're you're going into this movie thinking that this actually happened, mm -hmm. which is scarier yeah. just to think about it. Right? Yeah, especially when we get to the end and like what these characters actually go through. When you really dig into it, also it is loosely based on Ed Gein, and we'll get to him in a little bit, but. What's to actually prevent you from doing that at this time? There's very limited research, so people can say, no, it's not. You there's might no as internet, well, right? right, there's no internet. I mean, and if you think about in that space, the hype train around the film to get the buzz going, I mean, from Hitchcock to Blair Witch, like I'm thinking Psycho specifically to Blair Witch, like I remember to Paranormal Activity. Mm -hmm. The Blair Witch essential marketing plan was, contact your theater to make sure you get this true story because it's so shocking. Most places don't want to carry it. Look, I mean, it is literally playing this moment, the sign on the bench at the park that says wet paint. And what do you do? You touch it to make sure that it's wet. Mm -hmm. Dumbass. <laughs> yeah. It's oh shit. Human it's wet. Nature, huh? Yeah. The sign wasn't lying to me. Right. So there is a natural curiosity that you play on in the audience and business-wise, let's be frank about it, business-wise and affect genius. As far as the opening crawl and how that plays, I think it depends. Um, it got a little, like with Star Wars specifically, great in the first one by the time we got done and you're like, oh my God, there it is again, enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the voice, Laracut's voice helps a lot too. If it's some wimpy little weenie voice. It's a good voice. He's got it a is, good, yeah. rich. Mm -hmm baritone voice yeah as i drop I, mine I, an octave i think he's selling the seriousness of the story right and then you get to see oh my gosh this really happened what a horrible right you're building buy-in yeah so genius marketing technique and truthfully they weren't entirely lying because it's kind of true yeah kind of <laughs> yeah i mean like seven percent. Well, of. well, think of, well, think of horror after certain elements were taken yeah. from. Yeah, right. think of horror after this. You mentioned Blair Witch and Paranormal. All these films that followed in the footsteps of this one to kind of sell their film as based on a true story as a marketing ploy to get people to come see it. And it's kind of that like suspicious, but the strangers, that's another one too, okay. inspired by a true story or however they, whatever the rules are, you can say inspired or based on. <laughs> so well, I mean, what's going to happen? Is there happen? legality around that? Yes, there is actually. <laughs> is there? Yes, there is. And I forget what the breakdowns are with those claims that you make regarding screenplay and that, that uh, assumption in the film. But I think the highest it gets is 20% actual. And that's, 
I forget what it is, a true story. Mm-hmm. If it's inspired by, you're talking like maybe the people in the real life had, you know, this ability to breathe and so do the people in your movie. So you can make that claim. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, there is an actual legality around that and a claim that you can have backed up by the WGA writers guild of America with those claims. I it's, it's minimal. Like if you want an actual film, that's called the documentary. Mm-hmm. And even there's legality around that regarding how much of those remain to be true as well. That's really? a very murky area in story guys. Like mm-hmm. for everyone it's story, right? Yep. Yeah. From the oldest days of, so my uncle knew this fellow and they were at this house and they saw the ghost and we love that. And it's all bullshit. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows the uncle. Nobody knows the guy. Yeah. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> yeah. Everybody <laughs> knows the person. Nobody's ever the person. Yep. It's like, very, very tried and true, but back to the original point, it's minimal. 20%, I think, is the max. Again, someone's going to follow us on, on respond on one of the social medias, and I'm going to be off a bit, but I'm telling you, it's under 30%. Yeah, it's for yeah, sure. It's minimal, yeah. So then we get Which into- Which is interesting. <laughs> That's a whole other subject. Let's not go there. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know. So then we get into the opening- kind of credit sequence and we get just kind of sound effects. And Mark, you were pointing out like just the use of sound throughout the whole thing, which I think is pretty genius. And it's just like spades and shovels digging. And then we get, honestly, I'm going to make a claim here. One of the top five best sound effects in all of cinema, uh, that camera flash. And then, cause then we were like, what, what the heck are we looking at? What is that? And it's just like this rotting corpse body. And then as we open up and pull into the Texas heat, as it's kind of, splayed out on this kind of altar and these grave robbers. So it's, it's actually what sets the film into motion because our group of kids, Sally Franklin and crew are coming to check out the, the cemetery to make sure that granddad's uh, uh, corpse hasn't been desecrated by these, a rash of grave robbers here in the area. Can I pose you guys a question at this point? Go ahead. If the premise, and that's, that actually is the Ed Gein premise. Mm-hmm. That's the part of this film that's true. And that I agree with you, Jesse. I don't know about best ever, but I, it's amazing. I, I haven't it. even thought about that. It might be, in mm-hmm. fact. The camera, which would be the investigative element of the corpses that have been exhumed, <laughs> yes, if you will, for whatever debaucherous purposes this fucked up family has. Mm-hmm. That's actually the true piece of this story because they did investigate Ed Gein and all of the corpses that he had. Okay, so we've now tackled what part of the story is true so we can move on to the fiction now, right? Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> is that setup adequately paid off as this film unfolds for either of the two of you? Well, Insofar I- as that monument that's built on the graves, is it... I'm, I'm not going to say anything more. I just want you guys to respond, Jesse, and then Mark, I'll have you go. What do you think? Is it paid off, Jesse? I think it's a striking image to open up the film, that's for sure. And it, it's one of the strengths of the film, which I'm going to talk about a lot, is the cinematography of, of this thing for such a low-budget film. But I but I wonder, I don't even know if this is the Sawyer family doing these. It's That's never told to us if this is the family desecrating these corpses. It kind of just gets things moving, and it's like a conversation starter here at the beginning. But then it goes away, and the film becomes something else entirely. Right. Mark? Well, you know, as I mentioned during the film, you know, my head immediately went to some sort of supernatural aspect, mm-hmm. right? Because when I think of grave digging, I think of nefarious, supernatural, black magic types of things. Um, that's where my head went, maybe because I'm listening to your Damien <laughs> podcast and you're talking <laughs> about the exorcist and things like that. But um, yeah, so, so my head went in a completely different direction uh, uh, based on that opening scene. 
I wonder about that myself. Mm -hmm. If it's not the Sawyer family that's engaged in these acts of debauchery, then this little town in Texas is quite frankly the most evil town that's ever been erected. That includes Detroit in the middle of the 1980s. Shout out to Detroit on the back. Well, and there's a, there's like a, for me, I I got a sense of possession, right? You know, there's demonic Mm -hmm. things going on in this small Texas town. And I think that's one of the reasons why the film works for me. I mean, you mentioned Detroit. It's a great example of hugely populated metropolis. But here we are. And then we talked about The Exorcist. That's Georgetown. It's right in the middle of a city. Like, here's taking horror and putting it smack dab into the heart of America in 1974. And horror's no longer, it's not the vampires and the werewolves, but it's like, man, what's what's the neighbor doing next door? Like, what are these people up to on this farm? And that's where the true horror of this film lies is in the unknown of behind closed doors. Agreed. Yeah. So whether this is just the, the vehicle to get us going I down think the it road. Is. I really think it is. <laughs> okay. So I think I agree with you. I don't think the Sawyers and what they do mm-hmm. inside the farm doesn't really jive with these corpses yeah. that, cause I that, agree that's too. not what they do. Yeah. As much as I think that there's a a necessary trope to get the story going, and I can recognize that and acknowledge that, Mm -hmm. I think that's a... I'm struggling with that. There's a lot of ways that Hooper could have gone with story or direction in that. And it's it's shocking, Mm -hmm. and it's striking, and all of those things. And I don't know... (laughs) if that plays to any effect later in the film. It's and it's actually different in the remake too. I mean the it the remake the starts one. yeah the starts out with just them picking up the hitchhiker. Right, yeah. You know, th- thinking about it a little bit more, you you know the 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 whole thing about a small Texas town in the middle of nowhere is something typically pastoral and idyllic and this is clean country living, but you know the opening scene is like there's something very wrong here. Very dirty. Very, very, very. If somebody's digging up graves, something's very wrong. And, and whether or not it has to go with a plot line, it does give you a hint mm. that th- things are bad. Well, the, the whole town's off, too, when they get to the first stop. After we've seen those, whatever that weird monument is with the body holding that other corpse, holding that other corpse, whatever mm-hmm. the hell that is. Mm-hmm. The townsfolk that they run into are all super inbred with plenty of summer teeth. That is summer here and summer there. Yep. The guy lays on the ground in some drunken meth-induced stupor, babbling to himself about the evil that I know what happened. You know, there something's off. Yeah. And this is the I have another question for you guys. Yeah. In horror, we always get that moment when you just say to the characters through the screen, "Just turn around. Why are you going?" Like. Just leave. There's that Geico commercial that does it so well. Yeah, yeah. Their car's running. Let's hide behind that wall of chain like that, yeah. right? I love that commercial. Is it Geico or yeah. whoever it is? And that's after years of building up these tropes. Right. So this is important because yeah. this is setting the groundwork for many yeah. future, like we talked about all the things that were in films that this inspired. The road horror film. Sure. Well, you mentioned, you turned to me and said, have you ever seen Wolf Creek? And I was like, yeah, of course. It, yeah, that's... Boom, 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 boom. Mm -hmm. We talked about Halloween. We went on down the road. Yep. That moment where they're on the road and they're running out of gas, I'm sure all three of us in the room said, you know, it's probably not too late just to turn around Mm -hmm. and put a couple tanks of gas in the car. 
And I think that's really important. So I might have been a little bit hard on the film for I'm not sure the setup to get them going is one that's paid off to an area that I'm satisfied with. Doesn't ruin the film for me, but I just think it's a bad beginning. Mm -hmm. I think the idea here, which seems to be, man, stop. Like, you idiots, turn around. Mm -hmm. The signs are there. (laughs) And it's in every horror film. Yeah. Was that working for you both as much as that was working for me? I think it works for me because, you know, I'm, I put myself when this film was made and it hadn't been done pr- prior to this. There wasn't that film like kind of playing off of those ideas of don't pick up the hitchhiker, don't pick up this. Like this is the film that spawned those conversations. Like like the idea of this film is like I'll just fly there. Like I hate road trips, first of all, Amen. personally, and I'd rather fly to my destinations. But it's also because of this. I don't want to end up in these situations where we're A, running out of gas, which has happened to me before, and B, have to go door to door and then walk into this situation. It's because of this movie. Right. (laughs) Let's talk about some of our main characters here because we got the big one here. And before they get to the the gravesite with with the missing teeth people and everything, we have Franklin, who stops off the side of the road to take a pee. And then rolls down the hill, and this is the first of a series of... the truck came by. (laughs) Yes, of a series of missteps by the character Franklin, who kind of also sets the plot in motion, because this is whole thing, like, let's go, like, drive by the slaughterhouse, and let's go check out Dad's old abandoned house and and whatnot. But as we kind of said, I mean, Franklin is... We see everything through kind of his eyes, through his perspective... And we're trying to share some sympathy, but a lot of the things are also his fault. And he's also kind of the neglected one of this quote unquote family of these five people. One of them is his family, Sally, his sister. What do you guys think of Franklin? You know, you know, he kind of, uh, we were talking about this throughout the movie. He kind of steals the the show, so to speak, you know, all the action is around him in the beginning and you, you, you know, he has a disability, so he gets a lot of attention and, you know, that also kind of creates this situation where he's kind of a jerk mm-hmm. too, you know, you, you know, maybe as a result of all the attention. Um, and, and, and that just kind of sets things in motion. Well, we'll probably get to future scenes about mm-hmm. him, but no, yeah. Well, it's, uh, Franklin kind of sucks in this movie. Uh, it's just, it's the complaining and the whining. You're not going to miss him, right? You're, yeah. You're not going <laughs> to miss him, but it's like, he's, feeling left out in this family, much like, you know, when we get to talking about the other family, whether that be Leatherface or our hitchhiker, you know, they kind of the, the neglective latchkey kids too, like, like Franklin. The first third to half of the film, he's the featured character. Mm-hmm. I would argue he's the lead protagonist. And as such, you would expect them to find some element of sympathy or relatability to him. He's presented in such an ugly manner. That's his attitude. That's, the lack of hygiene that we talked about in this film that pervades the entire movie <laughs> and totally makes it off-putting. We're done on purpose and quite well done. Creepy in and of itself. Mm-hmm. From his inauspicious beginning, which is the tumble down the hill out of his wheelchair and the recognition how incapable he's going to be of moving in this environment, like through the thicket, there's no roads, there's nothing paved, and it's you know, a 1974 version of wheelchair, which is not mobile (laughs) or agile. You would think that there'd be some sympathetic trait that we would find in him to sort of side with him. Sure. Mm -hmm. I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but I got to tell you when he meets his maker here a little bit later on in the film, 
I'm almost pulling for the bad guy because he is just so detestable mm-hmm. by the time he goes away. And if we're talking about slasher horror as a as a sh- subgenre of horror, it is exploit exploitative by nature. Mm-hmm. And I think this also plays with Franklin. It has a bit of a feel in it of Todd Browning and Freak, sort of exploitative to the demise or unfortunate situations that the characters find themselves in naturally, Mm -hmm. like naturally occurring. Yes. But Franklin is in ridiculous clothes. He says ridiculous things, that stupid, ridiculous pocket knife that he has that he's digging at his fingers with, the way that he chooses to carve in the side of the car, his whininess, he's pretty hateable. Mm -hmm. And that's very interesting direction to go from Hooper. Because remember, if we go back to the scrawl, Mm -hmm. He's one of the two featured characters. Yep. Yeah. Him and Sally, right? Yep. So mm-hmm. we should like them. Well, just to defend him briefly. Oh, please. No, it, it, not, it, you know, as a protagonist, he did, to his credit, he did try to get him and his sister out of there to get help. He tried. Mm-hmm. And she wouldn't She wouldn't go for it, so they end up in the, yeah. Things, things go down. See, they make hitchies. They... Why are you playing this? Disgusting. (laughs) Boil it, except for the tongue. And they scrape all the flesh away from the bone. They they use everything. They don't throw nothing away. They they use the the jowls and the muscles and the the eyes and the ligaments and everything. For the nose and the gums and all the flesh, and they boil it down into a a big jelly of fat. Wow, I I didn't know that's what was in that stuff. It's really good. You, You like it? Yeah, I like it. It's good. You like head cheese? <laughs> that word, which was a working title for this film. Head really? cheese. Yeah. Oh, my oh God. Oh, Christ, really? Yeah. I, I didn't know what it was, but he <laughs> describes it in like a gory detail. It's like a marinating like cow head chili. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> With the slaughterhouse butcher effects that they've already gone over it's almost like toby hooper invited morrissey from the smiths on set with him <laughs> to talk about animal abuse but there's a, a film. well there's a lot there's a lot going on in the scene so they pick up the hitchhiker and it's this crazy unhinged guy who has like some sort of weird birthmark on his face yeah. uh, i thought it was blood but it's not and then he goes into this rant about head cheese and then into this whole thing about how they kill the cows and this is something important because here the sawyer family is you know something that's they're victims of the emerging technology boom of the seventies. Uh, Industrialization. Fr- yes. Yeah, as, automation. As Franklin said, they used to, you know, hit them two or three times with the sledgehammer and that's how you killed the cows. Now they just have a, a cattle prod that just goes into the head and Anton Chigurh from no country for old men. Right. But, um, you know, the Sawyers are victims of this. They were probably employed at the slaughterhouse. You know, the brother Leatherface worked there. Now they're put out of work and left to fend, like you said, survival of the fittest to make some type of living for them. Like, this is what they do now. They abduct tra- uh, traveler travelers by, by by way of the gas station. This is how they survive now, now that employment's out of the picture for them. So, yeah, if you have the people that come for gas on this wayward journey to hell mm-hmm. and then you kill them, then you have another source of meat that you can barbecue. And I don't think there's any question in this film that the barbecue oh, no. that they're eating yeah. is human. Yeah. Which then goes back to Franklin too, right? Because mm-hmm. not only is he using 
that disgusting knife that he's been digging at his fingers with and that weirdo, that hitchhiker brother that they picked up that cuts himself with is also the same knife that Sally uses to cut his sausage. Yeah. And he just eats it and mm-hmm. doesn't eat it, sucks on it. Yeah. And yeah, and we're not sure what that sausage is, right? <laughs> or we can only guess at this point. Guys, by the time that was, by the time he finally spits out that piece of <clears throat> sausage after the head cheese, I got to tell you, <laughs> my stomach was a bit upset already. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's early and I'm glad I'm drinking bourbon at 11 o'clock in the morning to fix that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever, right? But. <laughs> Again, for me, where this movie's really working is the lack of any sanitary practice anywhere. Yeah. This movie is filthy, and that's really off-putting for mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. I'm sure for you guys, too, but I, I, was, strugg- horror, I was really right? struggling. Well, <laughs> yeah. it's kind of, Jesse, one of your favorite things, mm-hmm. a bit of body dysmorphia. Yep. Right? Yeah. The perversion of the natural way of how a body's supposed to operate. I mean, this family has resorted to perversion and cannibalism as a source of survival. And that's like we're in some deep dark yeah, like like what like this is this is frightening to me. Like this is nightmare inducing. And then think back to nineteen seventy four, like we hadn't stepped into this field yet. Mark, are you as off put by the lack of cleanliness or just routine sanitary habits we've become accustomed to did that hit you as much as it did me or to some level as much as it did me my skin was crawling throughout all of that it was just really disgusting and and well the whole idea you know i was just thinking back the whole idea of cannibalism you know around that time frame let's see i don't remember when lord of the fly lord of the flies came out earlier but i must have read it around that time um and that whole where those guys crashed in the andes the rugby team uh, alive i think the book was called Mm -hmm. and there were several stories like that you know in desperation people resort to desperate measures and this is kind of that playing out in west texas somewhere (laughs) west texas somewhere All right, so we make a stop at the gas station. They have no gas, but we get the info that, yeah, the the Hardesty uh, uh, estate or what's left of it is right around the corner there, so why don't you go check it out? And as you say, it always, Mark, you said, it always starts in the abandoned kind of house. And man, this thing, this thing had a spider scene, like those little spiders on the wall. Yeah, I would have wouldn't have gone upstairs there. But we are now removing ourselves out of civilization. We're getting off the beaten path, literally into the country now, where there's no paved roads. So we're left to kind of fend for ourselves. And as two of our characters are about to kind of go and and kind of dabble into the, the pond or, or whatever watering hole is supposed to be the Kirk and Pam, and they go down this this thing. And like you said, Matt, like she's just laying in the dirt and like... <laughs> They're already sweaty. You brought it up, Mark. Why are these people wearing this heavy denim clothing? The guys mostly. The girls are not so much. But even though kind of Sally still sort of is. Why did they choose to put those clothes on to travel through Texas in the middle of, I guess, July? Maybe this movie is... Those long sleeve like, 70s shirts that we liked, you know, all the funky colors. and yeah. Yeah. If it's not survival of the fittest, it's certainly natural selection. Maybe these people had what was coming to them because they are just too dumb to continue to survive. Well, like like any like anything in life, any major like you know, I work in industrial AI, and any major accident right that happens in an industrial facility is usually a series of very bad decisions. Mm-hmm. You know, there's you know, it's not any one by itself is not the problem, but you string them all together, and awful things happen. And this movie is that playing out in spades. Yeah. So let's talk about what we find here now at the house. We are at the the threshold of the Sawyer house. Now as viewers, we've seen this, not you, Mark, but we know what's waiting for us. Uh, 
as viewers in 1974, I don't think we kind of quite know what we're about to get into. And as they're kind of there on the on the porch, Kirk and Pam, and they're like, he hands her a tooth that he finds on the floor. What do you, um, what do you think's like about to like happen? Like, are, are you prepared for like what this film is about to turn in, to turn into? I mean, yeah. what do you think, Mark? You've never seen this before. What do you, what do you, I mean, after the fact, you know, it all makes sense, but like, I, I it seemed like a human tooth too, right? You know, mm-hmm. a human tooth on the, on the filling front, in it. Yeah. On the front porch, you know, I'm like, that, that's a, that's a sign of bad things to come, but the gravity of that horror was not clear yet. Yeah, that's still, that's still building. We don't know what we're about to cross into. And I think that's a, a success of the film, actually. I think another thing that is working with that tooth bit is these people don't understand the environment that they're in. I, I'm not picking up somebody else's tooth that's just laying on the ground. That's disgusting, right? I mean, I would rather find an Oreo in a park that's half eaten and devour that. Then I thought that's not true either, but like we're talking about a very disgusting place at some point gets back to that. Maybe you guys should turn around, thumb it up, hitchhiker, do something. And of course, then that's the trick with horror, right? How can you buy off that moment where the suspense of disbelief or suspension of disbelief is paid off in a way where there is no logical way or reason for them to stop this quest. Okay. So don't go in that basement. Like if we, mm-hmm. there's terrible sounds in there, yeah. like go anywhere else. Guys, if we're sitting in here, I do this all the time, Jesse, and like blood started seeping from your roof. Yeah. We're getting out of here. And we heard <laughs> yeah. like, we're, we're going to go record at Mark's house. Yeah. We're gone. <laughs> right. Yep. How do you do that in horror? And I think the answer in this is these characters are either so young and naive Mm -hmm. or stupid that that buys it off because... A little both. Yeah, maybe. Let's get right into it. Hey, Pam! going on in that scene so let's let's just pretend right now let's get in our little time machine that's in the corner right there let's go back to 1974 let's pretend we're at a drive-in we got our bourbon with us we got real barbecue kind of in there we're hanging out (laughs) making a night of it we're watching the texas chainsaw massacre for the first time we get to this sequence right here as kirk passes the threshold into hell literally trips stumbles into that area right there, the meat locker. And we see Leatherface for the first time rise with this mallet and just crushes him. Like, what do we think at that point? How is this not maybe one of the most unforgiving and uncomfortable things we'd ever seen on film before? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I, I don't know. I can tell you even sitting here in 2020, which isn't 1974. Mm-hmm. 
that it's off-putting. Largely off-putting. Shockingly. And the the reveal of Leatherface, the way he come around like comes around the corner, is so well done. It's Jesse, don't throw something at me here, but <laughs> it's almost Bond like yeah. in the way that he comes through with the image that is a bit panned away. Mm-hmm. Way different kind of character, obviously. But we are highlighting the star of the movie and giving him full camera at attention doing something so shocking at this point the mallet on what's that guy's name kirk mm-hmm. the mallet to kirk multiple times it obviously is referencing what leatherface is good at the killing of cows in the slaughterhouse the movie then turns from franklin's film to leatherface's film mm-hmm. in 1974 honestly i probably would have turned it off especially if i was eating barbecue <laughs> and we would have got Chinese i just food. want a salad now exactly <laughs> right go ahead mark so I guess that that was just iconic, right? You know, first of all, the masked horror. So you don't really know what he looks like, really in in person. It's it's behind the mask. It's the horror you don't see, that that's often scariest. And you know, and you know, I remember at that time in my life. I know I saw the movie for the first time today, but at that time in my life, I'd never seen anything like that at that age. Um, and I was it was I found it really interesting. Um, you remember when they were talking in the van and the, the hitchhiker person whose name escapes me, if he had a name, he um, just called hitchhiker, hitchhiker. In, the, in the credits, the hitchhiker talked about, Oh no, the new technology doesn't work as well as the old way with the mallet. And sure enough, you know, just when we thought it was disgusting enough between the unsanitary conditions that the tooth, and then all of a sudden here's this leather faced man with a mallet, um, pounding at Kirk. I mean, that's just crazy. I like what you said there about the mask, the use of the the mask to hide the visage of the monster, because that's actually something that Toby Hooper says. And I have a quote from him where he said the idea kind of arose from him, you know, based on, you know, all the shit that was going on here in the early 1970s, the lack of sentimentality and just the sheer brutal things you were seeing on the news on the daily Vietnam, things like that. Um it led him to kind of believe that, you know, like, you know, it, it's not vampires or werewolves or demons. Like, man's like the true monster. So he's like, I'm going to make man the monster, but I'm going to put a literal mask on that monster in the film to kind of to kind of hide that. And again, this, Matt, this is horror changing. It's, I love The Exorcist, but this kind of re- represents a paradigm shift. We are about to go into this threshold of real monsters in the United States Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, uh, BTK, like all these real people that are about to merge here in the late 70s. Uh, It's not all kind of supernatural and science fiction anymore. Like this is real people. And that's where horror works really well for me. City natural from Mm -hmm. what was supernatural horror. The other thing too that just was mentioned is the hitchhiker saying the new technology doesn't work as well. If you think about the evolution of industry from the spinning Jenny to the seed drill, (laughs) every single person that was employed in labor that was more manual than automated makes the same argument. Oh, well, how can you possibly do that this way? Because right, because they've lost their employment. So the conversation and as well-versed as that guy is who knows about two things in his life and one is how to kill people and the other is how to kill cows is very knowledgeable about the lack of efficiency as he sees it 
to keep his own best self-interest semi-afloat in a family that's struggling with employment. Now, think about that. It's the mid-70s. We're going through some very interesting social and economic pieces, whether it be OPEC or otherwise here in the United States. There's lots of civil unrest. And if you take this character who has that weird birthmark and likes to cut himself and finds joy in, in these heinous acts, to be so knowledgeable, it's almost like he's doing what young children do, and that's they repeat the conversations that mom and dad have at the dinner table to those other people mm-hmm. because they've heard it so much. And it feels like the reheating of the conversation that they've had over whatever unwitting soul became barbecue dinner on Tuesday night that he is then rehashing for the people in the van in order to claim some necessary piece that his family no longer, no longer has a stake in. It's actually genius for character building. Mm -hmm. I think that hitchhiker might be the most developed of all the characters in the film. Yeah. And I would argue at some points he's as terrifying, if not more terrifying than Leatherface is. Than his brother. <laughs> Mark, one of the things I told you when we were having breakfast back when it was still appetizing uh, was uh, <laughs> I think I can count on my hand the amount of you know blood that you see in this film because as we're about to follow here with Pam, as she goes in, like, where the hell did Kurt go? And then she stumbles into like the room of whores and just bones and feathers and the chicken. You said like the chicken's oddly terrifying. Strange um, pet. <laughs> and then we're kind of joking. We're like, man, I get out of there. But like she's living the shock. Like you you almost get paralyzed by the fear of what you're kind of into. And as she gets picked up by Leatherface literally off the ground and then thrown onto a meat hook, we're not really seeing a lot of the graphic violence. I mean, we're shown the meat You don't hook. need to. Yeah. <laughs> and then then he pulls the chainsaw out and I think lops Kirk's head off, but it's all done off screen. Like, how did the violence work for you being that, you know, we don't see a lot of it, but I think you still said it. That's just as good. It's just as impactful. Oh, oh, definitely. Definitely. I actually, um, just given the, the the reputation this movie has, right, from, I mean, I remember hearing about the it, title. right? Yeah, the title. Yeah, the title, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You, you think blood and guts, and it's going to be- What's that movie about? Yeah, <laughs> it's going to be one of those types of movies, but actually, there's not a whole lot of gore. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the, the more scary things are where people cutting themselves, their own with selves the, with knives. With the dirty knives? Yeah, and things and like that. And finding great joy in it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and like giggling uncontrollably in a crazy kind of way, in the eyes and everything like that. But it's, again, the theme we've been sort of talking about, it's the horror you don't see that's, mm-hmm. that's oftentimes most scary. And I, I felt that. Good. In these situations. And I think that's what kind of impeded my first viewing of this was, you know, I kind of saw this in the post blockbuster days where I was looking, I had found horror now and I was looking to satisfy that thirst. I was like, man, I've seen evil dead. I've seen this. I got to Like, I want to see all, like, I want to see the gore fest. Now I got to Got to check it out. And we got to top it. So obviously this one, I think I'm going to get like just that I'm going to get something shocking and just like get all those great effects. And I think I was disappointed when there really wasn't that. So I, I kind of soured on this film in my first viewing. It was, it was unrelenting, but then there there wasn't anything to kind of pay off like the boogeyman uh, pursuits it in that regard. And I can tell you this, like within like the last one to two years, as I've kind of come back around, I've done a total 180 on this film to kind of see that much like you, Mark, I, that's just as effective as seeing the gruesomeness of the film. If you want that, go check out the remake because that provides it in spadefuls. But here, I think it's, you're right. 
But if you see the gruesomeness, mm-hmm. you 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 get desensitized to it over time. That's yep. the whole problem with like violence and video games and all this kind of stuff they talk about with children. Yeah. If you can't see it, your mind goes to places that it shouldn't. And then that is scarier to me. And to me, the real horror of this film is just in the situation itself. It's less of the actions and more of how did we get from just driving down the road to, man, we're like literally in like the house from hell right now. What's her name? Kim that gets put on that meat hook? No, uh, Pam. Pam, there you go. Speaking of your mind goes to places it shouldn't, when Leatherface hangs her on the meat hook, if the sharp end of the hook doesn't protrude through the anterior of her abdomen, then my thoughts were, is it hung up on some organ inside of her? Or is it hooked up underneath her rib cage so that it supports her? And either one of those are far worse than actually seeing the, the front of the tip come through her anterior, right? You guys are doing exactly what Toby, Toby Hooper wants right now, is to imagine the absolute worst. How, well, how can you not? Yeah. Right? So it's working. I mean, if that's what he set out mm-hmm. to do, it's clearly working. So these two are disposed of, and then enter Jerry's now going to kind of attempt to, like, where did those guys run off to? So then he kind of comes in and... Also dressed in jeans and a and a pretty fashionable long sleeve oh, shirt. Well, Matt wants his shirt. <laughs> I do. Matt wants to dress like Jerry. Hopefully he didn't get too much blood on that, because I think that's <laughs> usable. As he, But then, like... As we say, like, don't go in there. Jerry doesn't know what he's walking into. All these characters are so blinded by what's happening in there because they don't know. Done really subtly and smartly by Hooper, though, right? Yeah. You guys brought it up. You would just leave. Except the blanket that's familiar to him is on the patio. And oh, yeah, it's on the and, railing there. And yeah. everyone could say they leave, but if that's like your friends and like your good buddies in there. I'm, I'm really not going to leave you. Like I'm going to try and do my best to kind of find you and look Hope. around, yeah, look can. around for you. Sure. I'd look around for you guys. <laughs> Thank you to that. <laughs> Thank you to, to that. Yeah. I don't know if I can make the same claim. I'd come into that house <laughs> for sure. But man, yeah. Jer- Jerry comes in here and then he, and then he hears again, great use of sound. Mm-hmm. Pam scurrying about in the freezer. Oh. And I'll never forget. We get the camera bulb effect. And as she kind of, comes to in in there and then jerry's just so stricken by the guy that walks in next that he just has no what to do but scream and throw his hands up as he takes a mallet to the head like yikes <laughs> what do you guys think of that like when she comes her eyes just open like this like frozen corpse now it's just like whatever visage of life is left in her she just burst to life it was almost a brief resurrection Ooh. it felt like you know like coming out of the coffin or what you know that's where my head went but mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. So let's get, go ahead. I think it provides a little bit of hope too. Mm. Maybe we can get her out of there and get on with this. I mean, it's brief. It's 10 seconds because Leatherface comes back in and shuts the freezer. (laughs) But you know what else I really thought was smart about it? If Leatherface is the butcher and that's all he knows and he didn't have time to get to the meat because he was too busy working on some other piece of meat, where would you store that in the freezer until you were able to get to it? It's just so natural for him to carry on in this, thank you, in this space because that's what he's been doing for so long. He's clearly like the featured bad guy in this, right? But I also think he's done really well in that he's a victim of his own ignorance. The other thing it made me think of was 
the transition in Full Metal Jacket, speaking of Leatherface, from Private Pyle to Mother. Mm -hmm. In that movie, when Private Pyle shoots himself in that red, white, and blue bathroom scene, and then is born again hard as Mother going down the road a little bit later, it's hard not at this point to draw the correlations between Leatherface, Franklin, and the Hitchhiker, and who's born again hard into who, because they are all similar yeah. <laughs> in some way, like whether it's misanthropic or forgotten or misbegotten or the outcast, as you said, Jesse and the family, and Mark, you're the one that brought it up, so I'm going to hand this back to you and let you run with it in just a minute. Who's more advanced? Franklin's the most intelligent, Guys, he's the most hateable too. Yeah, I thought it was interesting when you know when Franklin you know was angry or didn't get his way. He did that sort of raspberry sound with his lips and tongue that was the same as the hitchhiker and the you know when he was kicked out of the van was pissed off and you know and and I thought whoa uh, I mean is that a sign that these guys are related somehow or somehow they there's a connection there or I guess neighbors at some mm-hmm. point in time right mm-hmm. which was was really kind of interesting um you know so who's who's really crazy here and 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 you know you know it, this is a nature versus nurture right um yes. you know perhaps similar genetics but slightly different upbringing but yet still po- possibly able to go dark you know just just because of the connection somehow i don't know that's where my head went jesse that's what you mentioned too genetics mm-hmm. they're not family members by blood yeah but they certainly seem familiar by genetic code or lack of dna yeah they, broken dna well they both seem the most they're the most disrespected in their families they're the most i think regressed and i think the most immature so to speak well said the outcasts yeah. Yeah. yeah like i think i said the latchkey kids of of these families Sally, I hear something. Stop. Stop. Get him. One of the strengths of this movie I'd like to talk about real quickly is, uh, so it was shot on 16 millimeter film cameras and, also back in school and <laughs> not only taking that awesome class, but I, I took a class with 16 millimeter cameras and they're a bitch to use. Like you have to like get the light sources just right. Otherwise you underexpose or overexpose the camera. So shooting at night with these things and they're not using like studio lighting to light the woods. Like they're using natural moonlight and like some visage of light. It looks pretty good for her running through the dark. Like you can still see pretty well. So your point about overexposure, yeah. you know, a lot of the scenes with the sun, you know, that may not have been intentional by the cameraman. That was just yeah. a function of the camera. Yeah, yeah, it could it could have been. I think this is a very well shot movie for the lack of money. And then because you're using such a, a, a grainy film stock, you get such a raw. I think that's another reason why the film feels so intense as it is, because it looks that way. No argument here. Yeah. So then we get into the chase sequence now. Okay, okay, let's talk about this. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Matt. <laughs> it's I don't know what its runtime is. I'm going to say just ten minutes, so we have a frame of reference. It's probably longer. <laughs> it's half of that too long. At the end, it's almost like we're just pay, playing Duck Duck Goose. Mm-hmm. We're just running in a circle. 
Um, and that's where I think at this point, the movie begins to really start taking on some water for me. It can't get out soon enough. We've established he's chasing her. Mm-hmm. We've established the thicket is rough to get through. Yeah. We've established that. And then about the but time- good we thing get, he had a chainsaw though. Well, that's interesting too. Like whereas, as, a, as hard as I'm being on that right now, you would think the chainsaw might actually aid in his ability to get through the thicket, but in fact, it's slowing him down too because he's got to cut it. So she's struggling because the branches are tearing at her and doing her worst impersonation of Snow White through the you know enchanted forest in the middle of the night and the branches and shit. Like, oh, I'm stuck, right? He's after her. Well, he's bigger, so that's going to slow him down. And that damn chainsaw, as much as you might think that would remove the branches, what it clearly takes into account, and it works, this part of this works, is the time to cut them. And a single cut, and this also, I think, leads to the the scary nature of being hacked to death by a chainsaw. Mm -hmm. If it takes five cuts to move through some branches so that there's a path for you to go forward, again, the door of the house also illustrates this. takes him 20 minutes to cut the goddamn door down. Mm Mm-hmm. What does that do to <laughs> yeah right? Yeah. What does that do to you? How many cuts does it take? I mean, and and he gives Franklin a good helping of him. It's yep. five or six cuts, but to the larger whole, it's just too long for me. What do you think, Mark? Yeah, yeah, we we were talking about this earlier. It 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 felt a little too long. Um, you know, we got it. We got the screaming. We got the difficulty getting through the forest. The, the part that really stood out for me, though, w- was not just the length of that scene, but the, the whole notion of a chainsaw as a weapon. Yeah. Um, you know, chainsaw is one of those things like when you're, you know, your parents don't want you to ride motorcycles as a kid. They tell you stories, bad things happen to people that ride motorcycles. Mm-hmm. Same, same with chainsaws. Yeah. I always grew up like, you know, never own a chainsaw. I, I happen to have an electric one I've now. Never, I've never used one. Or a battery one mm-hmm. now. But uh, this was this was unique, right? Sure. At, at that yeah. time, that... They're, they're scary, they're loud, they're, you, you hear all these bad stories about people hurting themselves accidentally with chainsaws, and to have that as a murder weapon, to me, was just off the charts creepy. I'm going to come on the other side of you guys on this one. Like, my first viewing, yeah, this, like, waned on me hard, and she's screaming, and it's relentless, and it goes on for, honestly, it's probably 12 to 15 minutes. Uh, but we're... It works for me is we are literally smack dab in someone's worst nightmare. Not only is the horse inside the house bad, but now this guy's literally chasing her in the house, outside the house. She jumps through the window. He keeps chasing. And I love those panning shots of her running and he's right behind her. Uh, you think of those dreams you have where you're running slow, you're running in oatmeal and you can't like move fast. Like we are literally in the, sand or, yeah. we are in the worst possible scenario for a human being to be in is in pursuit and you're running for your life. And then she makes it to safety and that's not even solace because he's part of it. But I think it works for me. I think it makes the terror of the chase that much more frightening. The, the the reference to the dream sequence, I think, is a really good one, Jesse. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you said that, I started thinking about that scene, and it it feels like when they're running through, I'll call it a forest or whatever it is, you know, you know, the lighting's a little off. Thing, it's hazy. It's mm-hmm. hazy. You can kind of make out branches yeah. and moonlight. Yeah, yeah. And there's feels dreamy. Dark mm-hmm. turns. Yeah, it feels very dreamy. And she's screaming at the top of her lungs, and by nature of our setting and where we're at, the help is miles away if they're going to hear those screams. I mean, this is a horrific scenario to be in. Isn't that, isn't that scary in and of itself? Yeah. You, know, you cry for help and you, you, you can't get help. Mm-hmm. There's no phone. Yeah. There's, you know, all this kind of stuff. 
I don't disagree with any of what you said. Mm-hmm. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. It is terrifying and it just is unrelenting. Yeah. What's the runtime? 95 minutes? No, it's an hour and 23 minutes. So 83 minutes. Mm-hmm. I just think in the 83 minutes that this is happening, there were, and again, I understand that this is a beginning, a burgeoning of what this genre is. Oh yeah, like, of course. A, like first a participant essentially. Mm-hmm. Maybe not, but close. I just think that there was more to play with, with what was on the farm and what we could have explored. But I, this, this isn't just in this moment. Yeah. When Pam, God, I keep forgetting her name. When Pam, chicken in the cage. Yeah. When Pam enters that room and falls on the feathers and the bones, mm-hmm. what they spend three minutes doing in this movie, I think you could spend a minute and a half doing. Now, that being said, mm-hmm. I understand that it's 2020 and it's get in late, get out early. Like that's... And this is 1974, so they're two different styles of filmmaking. I I acknowledge that heartily, fully acknowledge. Like that. a piece of meat, I think it's letting it marinate in the whore, like for us. It's really making us sit and watch. <laughs> you guys are hungry, right? We got to go get barbecue after this. Um, I'll go put something out on the grill. We'll smoke some meat. No, I think I think we're the, the Toby Hooper's taking enough time to really sit with it, get not going to get comfortable with it but get used to it because this is this is what we're dealing with here this is the platter i'm serving you yeah, you're, you're right yeah, it's yeah. Just, yeah i know it's it's again yeah, it seems like this i know like weighing on you like come on get in get out I, everything you said is absolutely right mm-hmm. you're yes oh, I, I mean you don't need my vote of approval to tell you you're right yeah. I mean, obviously it yes you're right yeah. it's just i just want more i get it it's just a personal thing Let's get to the dinner sequence here uh, coming up. So as Sally falls into another pitfall, she ends up back at the house where the house of horrors are. And we get, you know, is he the big, is he the big brother, the father figure? I don't know. That's not even really told to us either. He's just the barbecuer. The the guy that owns the gas station? Yeah. I actually think that's dad. Okay. I, yeah. That was that my assumption. Like he was dad. All right. He had an odd, you know, as crazy as those two brothers are, the mm-hmm. hitchhiker and Leatherface. Dad, who's not a big foreboding person, still ruled over them yeah. with an iron fist. You know, you would hit him with a stick and things like that. It was very interesting, sort of psychological. I like how he comes in. Leatherface leather is now in outfit number two, essentially playing dress up all day. Right. And he comes in, you're dead, damn it, you, you broke the door down. And he starts hitting him with the stick. Punishment. And the and, guy's and, huge. And the guy could just like slap him once. And, and he's he, scared of it. He backs into a corner. Like again, the 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 brain that Leatherface is working with right now. Did the part that was and this is putting this on the T for everybody that chooses to go against slasher horror for all of the exploitative nature of it. When dad, I guess we've decided that's dad, mm-hmm. is bringing Sally back to the house. <laughs> oh yeah. And she's on the floor tied up and he's prodding at her with that dull instrument. If you can't recognize the bastardization of sex, their sex in that moment, Mm -hmm. I don't don't know what to tell you. Like if you want to go there, this is your moment. Just lay there and take it. Can't be that bad as she's screaming and he's just having so much joy as he's prodding at her Mm -hmm. ineffectively, but nonetheless here, if you want to go, this is your moment. This is the moment to have your argument again, they're the bad guys. Sure. So bad guys do bad things. Mm-hmm. And if bad things don't happen to anyone, no one cares. I don't mean tree in the forest falls and no one hears it. Like, But yes, that's what I'm talking about here. <laughs> so we're creating a bad guy, but 
there it is. I mean, you have this moment right there, For not sure. a friendly moment mm-hmm. to females. Yeah. Which, but that's the whole genre. It really Let's is. Let's be honest yeah. about it. And we talked about that off mic about just kind of what roles females are lent to in this. But then also, you know, Sally's in this horrific situation right now going through things like this, but her perseverance, like at the end of the day is kind of what gets her to outsmart everyone else. Like she just keeps ticking or going and she's the energizer bunny and she's just going to keep going because she wants to live. You've just laid out the argument against that. And I think it's well said. Mm -hmm. There is a reason they're called the final girl and never the final guy. Yeah. They do have a staying power on this film that needs to be acknowledged and recognized. And as much as the bad guy is featured, whether it's Freddie or Leatherface or whomever it might be, they are all equally opposed and routinely defeated by a more than capable woman. So if you're going to do it and be all in, then fuck you, be all in. This is how you do it. Be all in. Like you have to take all of it. I don't want to hear just your side that suits it. You got to be all in with it. killer there ever was. I never took more than one lick, they say. I did 60 in five minutes once. Say, could have done more if the hook and pull gang could have gotten the beeves out of the way faster. Now, now, now don't you cry none. Grandpa's the best. It won't hurt Let's talk about this dinner sequence. Uh... You know, dinners, you know, a sacred family ritual, you know, you sit there. But here we have the reverse regurgitated, dissected version of what family is supposed to be. Mark, what do you think about how this is all laid out here at the end? I, I don't know what to say. I mean, it, it. I mean, just the whole idea of cannibalism in the first place is just I couldn't get that sure. out of my head sure. through all of this. But but to to take something so horrific in a situation so disgusting, and, but but yet put some ritual, <clears throat> like normal family ritual around it was just like, there's a, there's a fine line between, you know, mm-hmm. insanity and sanity is, is sort of my, mm-hmm. the message I got out of that one. Yeah. It's the cleanest place in the whole film. The table's immaculately set. Oddly, mm-hmm. yeah. So yeah, there is a formality to this, a ritualized piece that they honor on high mm-hmm. with grandpa seated at the head of the table. Um, that was what stuck out to me mm-hmm. is in this movie that's just covered with dust and bone and blood and dirt. That table's immaculate mm-hmm. in the context. This is not eating at some five-star dining <laughs> establishment. <laughs> Relatively speaking. Right. <laughs> in what's plausible. That table is really clean. The plates are really clean. They're seated appropriately. Very very interesting. They were sort of behaving themselves. They actually sort of. were. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. They were. And if you notice, Leatherface is dressed in his Sunday best from this point going forward. He's yep. got he's had a tie on the whole film, which very <laughs> weird look. But now he has on a suit. Yep. He's even put on his best wig and his best makeup. Pam's face. <laughs> yeah. Jesus. What a trip, right? The way I kind of think of this is again, I've been saying it all like, like, horror has stepped out of the supernatural, it stepped out of the 50s and the 60s, and gone or Norman Rockwell and leave it to Beaver, Dick Van Dyke, the sanctity of the family dynamic. And this is what we have now in 1974. Like, this is fucked. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> well said. And that's terrifying to me. Like, but- this is this is a nightmare that, that we're living watching this film. But the formality continues, right? You know, it, 
the, the eldest the eldest person at the table, grandpa, gets the honor of breaking the bread, carving the turkey in this case. And he was like a 20-year-old kid too, by the way. Killing, oh really? Yeah, it was the, all, all makeup. Oh really, yeah. Oh. Uh, you know, having to, to kill this woman for what tomorrow well, carving, night's dinner? Carving the turkey—that's <laughs> that's that's spot on. That's great. Yeah, we've gone over the other piece of cannibalism, or we've glossed over that, and that's the piece where they let Grandpa have a taste of, I guess, the appetizer for the meal, which is Sally. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. forgot about that. And as much as he starts sucking on her fingers and enjoying it, mm-hmm. again, back to that space that we talked about, and like to myself, fuck you if you're going to be all in, be all in. Also, pretty perverse. Mm-hmm. As he's kind of kicking around, and it has to do with sucking I think and I- the taking on of bodily fluid. Like, how much more do I need to be graphic with this for you guys, right? Yeah. Like, you can clearly, as done at the misfortune of a pretty attractive young woman, like there it is again, the bad guy yeah, doing a bad thing, but really happy. And like literally in an orgasmic state as he begins to take it down and kicking around and acting like you said, little kid, mm-hmm. very young, all of a sudden sort of reinvigorated with the, the body that didn't move is all of a sudden now capable of kicks and punches and happy, it's alive. Yeah, joyous, <laughs> that, Vamp- that was vampiric, surprising. but sexually vampiric. And if you want to go to that trope, Vampires are an embodiment of of sex on high. Yes. So here we go again. That's the hardest part in the movie for me to watch. Me like, too. Just actually. like the like the drinking of blood and the sucking of fingers is always just like so yeah. uncomfortable for me. Yes. Uh, but then yeah, you said it really well, Mark. That the carving of the turkey. We're gonna let grandpa grandpa have a piece. Like here, he's still good with the mallet. He could barely clutch it in his arthritic hands as they have Sally over like the kill bucket. Like they're gonna like spill her out. And then they're gonna throw her out on the table. Like. Good God. <laughs> and they almost look at it as like it's an honor being bestowed upon her. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, you get to get it from Grandpa. Mm-hmm. He's the best. Whoa. And yeah. then they brought a bucket to keep the kitchen or the dining room clean. Yep. Ooh, Good like, catch. Yeah. yeah this, is, this seems loaded. Like, yeah. <laughs> so much going on here. We could spend another hour talking about it probably. But yeah. Sally does manage, again, her perseverance to like, this is horrendous, and like, I, you, like, what would you do in that situation? How could you even like think of what you would do? But she manages to kind of get enough space to get out, jumps out her second window. And you said, Mark, I don't even know if I could jump out a window like at that point, much less two. Oh, and they're frosted windows, so you're not seeing where you're going. You know, you're just jumping out a window. That's desperation. The will to best. survive, the will to keep powering on. And when she jumps out and there's like a, a medium shot on her face and she's covered in blood and almost kind of like joyous, happy... And she's like, I got to keep going. And she goes. But then she's got the hitchhiker behind her, Leatherface behind her. And then you said, like, you kind of don't know unless like you've seen it a few times. But he's got the razor and he's he's hacking at her all the way to the road. And that's brutal. And it's dawn, right? So they've, this has been going on all night? Or? Yeah. Yes. Tortured her for a while. Yep. To her staying power. She survived. And is going to go down with the the best fight of any of them in the film. Oh, yeah. Capably done and wildly undermanned. If you think about it, that's been her issue too, right? She has had to worry about Franklin, so moving Franklin through the thicket slows her down and renders her almost inept. She jumps through two windows. She gets a mallet bashed on her head. She's been tied up for, I guess, 12 hours at the dinner table or in the kitchen, 
this 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 woman Sally has had every obstacle put before her, and I wouldn't say she's navigated it with deft grace, but capably. I think capably at least. Mm-hmm. And if she's the one that has survived the Sawyer family versus all of the other, and clearly there's been a lot of them by the amount of bones that we see in this house. And the cars under the camo. Okay, great. Oh, yeah. In the cars, mm-hmm. exactly. We have to raise it up to Sally. Oh, yeah. Because if it's not Sally, none of us know who Jamie Lee Curtis is. Oh, yeah. Or we can go on with any of those important pieces in this genre. Yeah. Capably carried by strong female 1974 is a very critical year for the slasher genre because not only have this film but you have another one of my favorites uh black christmas um the canadian slasher yeah olivia hussey and margot kidder uh we got to cover that movie another day because that that one's hugely important but a big year and it's, it's setting the precedent for the film that's about to like literally blow the doors off of it christmas cask yeah <laughs> christmas yeah there you go <laughs> home alone black christmas it's a wonderful life. What die, a, die hard again. What die, a, hard again. <laughs> die hard part two. Just because it's a Christmas film. Yeah. yeah. So you don't get me wrong. Halloween's my all time favorite movie, but like the, the, that, that film and this one are, they're setting the groundwork for what Carpenter is going to do so well in that film. Yeah. He's just going to take all that and put it in your neighborhood. Right. Yep. Yes. So now we have the, the semi truck that comes and mows the hitchhiker down and then he's like, oh, my God, what the hell's going on here? And so he's like, get in the thing. And that, then, that was pretty graphic, though. Sure you got was. to see him go under all the wheels. Oh, a couple the, times. The, the dummy or whatever they use there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so now this driver's kind of thrust into the middle of this nightmare as he's running. And then I love it. Like, it, they never explain, but he just takes off. Yeah. <laughs> and we never see him <laughs> again. He just runs down the road. Because then another truck comes in, and literally the last his car won't start. Leatherface has a wound in his leg now, and we just get enough time to get Sally in the back, get down the road, and I love the final shots of this film. Literally, Sally looking back, the the screams turning into laughter. I've made it. I've made it this far. Almost like Jimmy Stewart at the end of Vertigo. Like, I've reached the precipice of conquering my fear. I've made it. I've survived and I can't even imagine the mental trauma that Sally's going to have to deal with for the rest of her life going forward. And then Leatherface doing this quasi-ballet chainsaw swinging as we cut to black. I mean, there's just so much, a lot of powerful images being left with you at the end of this film. Yeah, those final sounds of the chainsaw was the first time, you know, we always heard chainsaw engines, you know, the, the engine running. But this is we were getting the... Yeah, mm-hmm. it was very sort of almost like you said, dance like and poetic toward yep. the end. Almost childlike, isn't it? Yep. As he's just spinning around, celebrating this joyous moment with his favorite toy. Like if you replace him with a little girl and put a doll in her hands, swaying around, welcome to my life at various times in the last five years. I've watched her do that. Yeah. God bless you, Ava. But, and you're not Leatherface. Leatherface has, in a weird way to me, a kid-like element to him from playing dress-up to the simple nature of being able to do one task to being still a little bit scared of dad. He's kid-like, just violently Mm kid-like. And if you think about crazed motivations put in the hands of a child who doesn't know quite what consequence is yet, Oh my God. Or hasn't been taught right from wrong. Sure. Terrifying. Mm-hmm. What a great villain. 
I have a couple things here, and then I got some questions for you guys. Uh, filmed in Round Rock, Texas. I've never been there. Uh, uh, this house was actually moved to uh, Kingston, uh, or Kingsland, Texas, where it actually functions as part museum tribute to the film, part barbecue restaurant. I kid you not. Like we, we got to go one of these days. We got to go <laughs> road trip. Yeah. I know you don't like road trips, but <laughs> oh yeah, I'd this have might to, be worth it. Uh, maybe there's a little airfield next to this. <laughs> I'll meet you guys there. 16 hour film days in up to 110 degree Texas heat. That doesn't Ooh. count the like ninety percent humidity. Probably that's like I can't imagine. Like I would walk, I would walk off. Like this is a nightmare of a film production. Certainly lends to authenticity, right? Yeah, but when they're screaming and feeling like looking I mean, miserable, they probably are. They probably are very miserable. As we kind of mentioned earlier, Toby Hooper hoped for a PG rating. I don't know what the hell he was thinking, but <laughs> again, it's not an overly violent film. A lot of it's implied. Yeah, but, but the thing about nineteen seventy four. Yeah, I mean PG then. Oh no way. Yeah, exactly. Do you guys honestly think there's still an argument that this film would receive NC-17 today? Mm, no, it'd probably still be R. Hard R? Yeah. Close to NC-17? No, I don't, I don't think so. Because, again, a lot of the implied violence is off screen. It's the torturous elements that probably lend it the R. I'm curious about that. I don't know how. I, yeah, I, I think I don't. I think with the criteria, it probably wouldn't be. I mean, if the remake itself isn't enough to push it to NC-17 and that's a more graphic film, then yeah, I can't go quite that far. How close do you think anything Zombie did, Devil's Rejects or House of a Thousand Corpses got to NC-17? Yeah, I think it, a lot of it. I think he had to probably trim a lot to get to a passable R. So I guess if those didn't, then this probably doesn't have... There's another influence for you right there. I sure. mean, House oh, of for a, sure. the House of a Thousand Corpses is this film. Resident Evil, the new one. Yep. Well, not new. There's a couple more, but the seven. seven. Yeah, seven. Yep. Yeah. Hundred and forty thousand dollar budget. Thirty million dollar gross when it came out. That equates to about hundred and fifty million dollar in today's money. This movie was a big hit when it came out. We talked about this. It was uh, when we. Oh, we, we had, uh, we, it was a big hit when it came out. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> um. The distribution piece on this had to be limited too. Mm -hmm. I can't see a whole lot of the theater and the mall. <laughs> what are you guys showing at seven o'clock today? Texas Chainsaw Massacre. This is a film that. What's that about? Yeah. <laughs> right. Don't you think that? Don't you think this is a film that it's had a cooking to, film about me? <laughs> don't you think this is a film that had to have thrived off of like the drive-through circuit? Like, oh, had to have. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I. I what a joy that would have been to have seen like then again, I, I, we went in the time machine to go experience that moment, but that would have, that must've been something else. Like I know nothing about what I'm about to say here, but I'm going to play it, role play it out. <laughs> I've never owned a movie theater in the 1970s. So I have no idea what sheet came in the mail for the selection of choices that you could choose for residency in your theater for this a time period. Premiere or whatever. I, I, yeah. I have no idea how that played out, but there had to have been some process, right? So in 1974, with everything else that was out there, ordinary people or whatever the hell else was out there, this comes through. You would have had to have been that theater owner. Mm -hmm. Quotes around that, that whatever that is, right? But that that theater owner to be, oh yeah, there we go. <laughs> Especially with that's the ticket, right? The negative reception around it as it was being released. Mm -hmm. There wasn't the internet, so news wasn't quite as fast and furious then as it is now. <laughs> we could do whatever friendly 
Disney flick or whatever the hell else. Do we know what time of the year it came out? Is this a summer release? October. So it's a, okay. That plays a little bit. That'd be a tough selection. Yeah. That'd be a real tough selection. Definitely. It's, it's easy to be film savvy now because there's so many sources. There were some people that were like that back then. Not many. Mm-hmm. And you would have had to have been pretty film savvy to have your finger on the pulse of the financial boon that this movie offered. And lo and behold, because it's, it's, I mean, it's not even Halloween. It's the precursor to Halloween. Yeah. And it's not The Exorcist because it's a totally different kind of horror. Well, that's a studio horror film. Right? Yep. Super, or Supernatural versus City. Mm-hmm. R- urban, I guess. Not really city. Rural, yeah, I guess. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I just... I A big risk. I want to find... I'm going to look this week and find some explanation from a theater owner as to why they chose this if they did. Like, do you guys, Grauman's had to have been around in 1974. Oh, of course, yeah. No way this Grauman's is showing that. Right? No, <laughs> yeah. no way. I just, the fact that it garnered 30. Yeah. You said 30? Yeah. In its theatrical release? Mm-hmm. How? Yeah. Drive through circuits. Like, this was like just something <sighs> that, you could. That was a lot of money back then, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that yeah. was a pretty successful film. Yeah, I definitely. thought I read somewhere, too, that it was only surpassed in terms of ROI by, mm-hmm. by Halloween, yeah. right? As an independent film. Is that yeah. right? Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Horror, man. Or you can do that in horror. Yeah, you can. Doesn't take take a lot. All right, I got some questions for you guys. Mark, as we've kind of done lately on the show, is kind of reflect back on some pieces that we kind of want to just bring up again. So what is uh, your favorite tasting note of the film? I'm talking about your favorite moment from the film, if you have one. So what is that for you guys? Oh, God. Favorite moment. Okay. Ah, oh, There's, there's, there's too many uh, <laughs> look i think i think when you know sally no pam pam gets into the the house and gets into that room sure. with the bones and the feathers and the chicken in the bird cage and mm-hmm. that was just over the top for me oh yeah yeah my that, scar- scarier than beyond belief right? <laughs> that's pretty good mine's when kirk walks into that threshold and is met with leatherface because as we go back and listen 40 minutes ago, but that was, it's, it's a very impactful moment. Iconic. Yes. The bond entrance. I think you called it, Matt. I, I like that, but as usually the positive and sunshine element on this podcast, I'm going to continue to stay in that place, Jesse, because <laughs> you know me, sunshine. <laughs> I actually think it's when Sally gets away. Mm-hmm. And actually maybe before that, when she finally finds some capable help, on the roadside, whether mm-hmm. it's the truck crushing a hitchhiker, man, there's at least a little hope coming. I think there's some, there is relief for me. Sure. Maybe we are going to get out of this hell that's been the last 90 minutes, or essentially 90 minutes. It's the first source of help in the entire film. It, it's just relief. It, mm-hmm. uh, and it's, it's the only source of help, right? <laughs> yep. And that's as basic as it comes that's good. in story, the relief of tension. Hey guys, what's the? Oh my God! I need to take a shot moment of this film. I mean, there's a King's Ransom to choose for. I mentioned mine a second earlier. It's the finger sucking grandpa scene. Like that's just like cringe for me. It's the same for me. <laughs> uh, 
the meat hook was pretty bad. Yes, um, I saw you. I saw you cringe a little bit yeah, while we were that, watching it. That was like it was like you expected to see more gore and you didn't, which was worse because your mind went in all kinds of dark to all kinds of dark places. Who's the master distiller on Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Who's most in control of their craft on this film, Matt? I think Hooper did the score also on this, didn't he? Mm, Sound effects? Maybe. I don't know. I'll have to look. I think I remember in the credits that Hooper had some sound credit. (laughs) Uh, It's him, but it's not him insofar as like what we talked about with Stallone. It's him in the, the affect of this movie. It's shot really well. He had a huge play in that. The sound of it, I think, is equally as effective as the grainy, the camera's almost sweating blood <laughs> as you watch it it's for me it's hooper mm-hmm. technically it's hooper technically yeah excellent i have to agree um you know not only did he direct it, i think he co-wrote it too mm-hmm. which i mean there's some dark stuff going through that gentleman's mind to come up with this story yeah I know it's loosely based on what is his name, Ed Gein, yeah. and, and things like that but th- there, there's some dark stuff going on oh there of that course said Excellent. I'm actually going to go, and I don't think I've done this on uh, on the show before. But Matt, you know, I play I play well in the kind of technical space of of filmmaking. I don't think I've given it to a cinematographer before, but Daniel Pearl's uh, camera work on this thing is absolutely brilliant, and he actually came back to shoot the remake. Um, uh, so that film's actually shot really well too, and I always liked that the the shot of underneath the swing as we follow Pam's cut off corduroy shorts walking up to the thing. I mean, you get, you get like, it's such a bastardization of like, of the American homestead. I mean, you got this blue sky, but then you have this literal nightmare house as she's walking up to it and it's shot real low. And I always think I was like, man, how'd they get the camera to go under there? Because someone's got to be holding it. Like they're not laying dolly track there for, for something this low budget. So it shot well at couldn't night. Couldn't afford to. Yeah. No, they couldn't afford to lay dolly tracks. So I'm going to give it to him. I mean, this is for 140 on 60 millimeters. Looks great. It looks great too on the Blu-ray. Like they've restored this film really well. Yeah. Yeah. How are you guys going to rate and grade Texas Chainsaw Massacre? We have Rock Gut, Well, Call, Single Barrel, and Top Shelf. Mark, I'm going to let you go first. You know, I'm not. Uh, I'm. I'm not as well versed in horror as. Both of you are, um, you know, you've mentioned movie names throughout this podcast, some of some of which I haven't heard before. Um, so I don't have as as deep a reservoir to compare it to. But um, I, I think, you know, the more, I, you know, watching it, the feeling you got from the cinematography, like Jesse even said, like, I feel the heat and the humidity right now, the miserableness of the weather and just the creepiness of the settings and some of the camera angles that were often, often um, stationary cameras. Right. Um, and you're just watching things unfold this, this sort of uh, building of the horror over time. It, it's, it's definitely a single barrel for me. Uh, maybe I can make an argument for top shelf. I just don't know horror as well, sure. but it's, it's definitely single barrel. Excellent. Matt. <clears throat> oh, anything that's, too many long scenes. <laughs> well, that's what, yes, that is not working for it. But for, for me, it's hard to deny how important this movie would be to the slasher horror genre. You can't. Mm-hmm. That being said, 
I tend to kind of go single barrel with those type of films, the first of its type that then created a lasting type. Mm -hmm. So it might be single barrel for me, but it's not fantastic single barrel. Mm -hmm. So call minus quality. Yeah. Put into a single barrel. Ooh, good. That's weird. <laughs> That's a weird whiskey. Yeah, it is. Call minus quality put into a single barrel story. Yeah. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. yeah. Or fermenting in a single barrel like cask. Um, for all of the moments that really work, there's an equal number of moments that don't work for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been it's been a long, long time since I've seen this film. Rewatchability is not always a precursor to the movie being good in my mind or not, but I don't need to see this again, maybe ever. Not because I hated it, just because I get it. And now that I sure. remember it and I'm not 11, yeah. right? Yep. So I'm really comfortable with that grading, I think. Single barrel with a call minus quality to it. It's an important movie. It's so early in the franchise, it's cutting some important tropes, but it hasn't quite figured out what it's going to do. That being said, I can forgive it, but there are some problems with what the setup is that's not paid off as to why they get going and just again and it's you guys this is stupid this is such a stupid comment to say that it's a bit overindulgent because slasher horror works with excess yeah so that's a a ridiculous comment to make (laughs) but per story and what should happen in 90 minutes versus what doesn't Mm -hmm. length of time that's tough for me even as much as we like the dinner table scene it's six minutes too long like get on with it. So yeah, really important film. Don't love it, but I don't hate it either. You're a strict, uh, like pacing person. Like it's big for me. Yeah. You, that's like a very important staple for you in film is like, you like to have things paced accordingly. And you, you, again, with like Tarantino, the overindulgence is kind of where it hangs you up a bit. You're right. Uh, okay. Yeah. This is going to be interesting. Like years ago, I probably would have given this film as low as a well rating, maybe like well minus, like it just wasn't something that like I wanted to go back and watch it kind of, it didn't live up to the name or my expectations of it. But I think this is an important part of, of film and that's the reappraisal and the going back to something that maybe you didn't get, give a fair shake to. And I don't do this often. And like I said, I would give it as, as low as a well, after everything we've said and, and broken down and the importance of it, um, I have to give this a top shelf rating. Uh, we mentioned the names of Halloween, Rob Zombie, Blair Witch Project, Paranormal Activity, uh, The Strangers, like the amount of horror that this film has influenced and the ability for us to break apart a simple dinner scene into what what we were able to look at the shirt Matt's wearing right now. Just the influence of Leatherface is the first modern boogeyman of the slasher boom. Yeah. Uh it's shot well on a low budget. It looks gritty. It To me, it takes horror out of the supernatural and places it in the heart of Americana, and that is terrifying for me as a film viewer. Uh, it's unrelenting, and I think in unrelenting, it's supposed to be uncomfortable. This is a top-shelf film that I agree with you is not one that you watch all the time. Once in a gray moon, because it is so uncomfortable to sit through and experience, and, but I think there's something to that, and to the listeners out there that like kind of feel that way about certain films, I, I think film is just such, we are quick to pass judgment on it and how we feel, especially if we see something in the theater and we kind of write it off. Uh, 
maybe the circumstances weren't appropriate. I think film and much like the critics, like we go look, Roger Ebert hated this movie, but we could say a lot about him. Why couldn't we? But <laughs> even a film like The Thing, like films that aren't treated well on their initial release that we can kind of go back and look at. And then we're like, there's something there. I mean, we're talking about family dynamics and technology booms and the rise of the serial killer in, in America and the basis of Ed Gein. Vegetarianism. And, yeah, vegetarianism <laughs> and the final girl and, and all this stuff within an 83-minute uh, film. Yeah, about a chainsaw massacre. I mean, think about that. Amen to you. I mean, if the, if the movie makes you feel this way, Jesse, yeah. then it's a really well-made film. Yeah. You know? Amen to you, Toby Hooper, R.I.P., He's Seriously. no longer with us, and honestly, I only like one other of his films, which is Poltergeist, and there's a debate on whether or not he actually made that movie. <laughs> right. So, so, yeah, that's that's going to be the the rating for me, but I love all of your takes on it. I mean, I think we had a will a will well-versed discussion and three very different viewpoints kind of coming into this. So, yeah, that's what it's all about. It was supposed to be that of over the beginning of Slasher Horror. Exactly. I love it. So let's wrap this thing up with a nightcap. your skin crawl that's a camera exposure by the way very effective sound effect it almost sounds like a bandsaw right or, mm -hmm. or, oh. yeah mm -hmm. yeah i'm like what camera bulb makes that sound <laughs> okay so this film set deep in the heart of Texas, wherever it may be. There's a lot of great films set in the state of Texas. So let's just kind of go around the table. What's your favorite film set in the Lone Star State? Do you want me to go first? Go ahead. All right, this was tough. It's a tie. So I'm going to Jesse this one and say an honorable <laughs> mention and then my other one. Okay, so the honorable mention is Hell or High Water. I loved that film. Mm-hmm. Probably top 15 in the last 20 years for me. Good movie. I think it's absolutely a masterpiece. Mm -hmm. It's well done. I like that kind of story. It works with the family dynamic that you and I both like. Uh, I don't think there's ever enough heist films available if done well. Sure. Um, ben Foster is one of the most unrefined or unappreciated talents in Hollywood currently. He just doesn't have the look to sort of be the guy. Mm-hmm. Chris Pine, who has the look to be the guy in his best performance by miles. Oh, yeah, he's great in that. On screen. Um, Jeff Bridges is fantastic. Like, that movie's just a masterpiece. There's a, there's a, one of the extras, uh, one of the sheriff extras at the opening of that film was actually in one of my student films um, in college. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah. How about his that? name's Giacomo? That's awesome. Yeah. He was a wild character. <laughs> that's great. As much as though I love that, that's not my winner. Ooh, it's number one. Three Burials of Melchiavus Estrada. <laughs> it's such a good movie that very few people saw. Essentially, the premise is Barry Pepper, who is a Border Patrol agent, shoots Tommy Lee Jones's friend. With his cyclo gun? Yep, exactly. <laughs> a good moment for Barry Pepper compared yeah, yeah, to oh, oh, <laughs> Battlefield. I had to, I had to. Yeah. And... Tommy Lee Jones goes about not only giving his friend a proper burial, but figuring out why the hell he shot him. And the end of that movie is just going to leave your mouth hanging on the floor. January Jones is in it capably. It's a really solid film. That's my favorite movie from Texas. I've never seen that. So we got to do that one one of these days. We have to do that one day. Okay. So there you go. Mark? 
Well, uh, I'm going to go with another Tommy Lee Jones film. Uh, and you alluded to it earlier. I just about fell out of my chair with your reference to Anton Shigur. Sh- what does... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, no Country for Old Men. Um, that that character that Harvey, Javier Bardem played was just... You know, it's one of those, you know, unstoppable, evil, whatever, immortal, almost supernatural villains. Sure, yeah. Um, and just the, just being set in, in Texas like that. And, and that, that movie will always have a special place in my heart. I think it was one of the Coen brothers. I think it was Ethan mm-hmm. stayed at our family business here in town during the shooting of that. Oh, so cool. uh, th- that just always stands out as a, a really good movie to me. We might have to have you, but we got to do a Coen brothers cast first of all, because blood simple is another Texas set film. That's amazing, Matt. Yep. We, you, that's one of your favorites, Yep. but we might have to have you come back on that. Cause I like that movie. I know for a fact that Matt is not entirely fond of No Country for Old Men. <laughs> um, might be in the category of five most overrated of all time. I don't like that movie. So I think that would I think that would be a great conversation. I, I did piece. not know that. Yeah. yeah, I think that would be a great episode. So we'll we'll keep that one in the back pocket. That would be fun. We haven't done one in a while where you and I are way opposite sides. Yeah, since it hasn't been a while. Tarantino. Yeah, that was the. <laughs> It's not the funnest face to be. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Um, okay. Uh, well What's uh, your favorite, Jesse? Uh, uh, quick honorable mention. Uh, Last picture show. Yeah. Remember, I told you there's a great Peter Bogdanovich podcast right now called. Uh, <laughs> I can't. I want to say the projection booth, but that's not it. It's. Uh, oh my god, Matt! I just sent it to you. I know. Um, god I'm gonna look. Damn it! I'm gonna look it up real quick. But no, that that film's amazing. Young Jeff Bridges, Timothy Bottoms. You got great performances by Cloris Leachman and Ben Johnson and, of course, Sybil Shepard. And Bogdanovich is a bastard. Yes. As a human. What a terrible human being. (laughs) And so this podcast really breaks breaks all that down. Here, I got the name of it for you right here. It is called The Plot Thickens. It's a Turner Classic Movies podcast all about him and his, like, role as a filmmaker. And Homewrecker. And Homewrecker. And Orson Welles living with him for the later years of his life. What? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, crazy stories that that they're telling on that podcast. That's not my first choice. I gotta go. Richard Linkletter, Austin, Texas, uh, Dazed and Confused. I mean, th- this is such an interesting movie because there's not really a plot in the movie. It's what they call "quote unquote" a hangout movie. You're just with these characters from sun up to sundown, hanging out with them. You got great tunes, a great soundtrack. The introduction of Matthew McConaughey. All right, all right, all right. He's come up a lot today. Oh my God. Yeah. We didn't even mention the sequels to Texas Chainsaw, which are insane. Like, yeah. well, when Matt told me about the, the nightcap question that my head immediately went to Dallas buyers club, mm-hmm. like what Texas movies can I think of? It's a good one too. Well, Texas boy, Matthew McConaughey. That's, exactly. Yep, exactly. What a fun movie. It's it's just adolescence. It's a coming of age movie. There's baseball, there's hazing, young Ben Affleck. I mean, the, the film's got everything that, that you kind of want from it. And it's just a fun, it's just a fun watch. Yeah. So that's that's my choice. Good choices. Mm-hmm. Those are really good films, except for yours, Mark. A lot of <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. But a lot of important. <laughs> I film, like that movie. <laughs> a lot of important filmmakers coming out of that. You got Linklater. Sure. You have Richard Rodriguez, uh, Wes Anderson, kind of coming out of that Austin film circuit. Yeah. I've never been to South by Southwest, but I'd love to go to that one of these days. Me like too. that would be a fun little festival to go to sure if would. it ever happens again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Here's open to that. Cheers. 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 I love. I love. I love your film choices, guys. Alrighty, um, that's gonna put the the end on this episode. Thank you to um, yeah, our our thank you to Mark for for coming. Mark, you're always welcome back again. We got thank you very much for having me. No, yeah, this pleasure this, is ours. 
this this is great and I, like like we said i mean coming up with ideas for for future episodes and cask ideas the no country for old men that one sounds great and to 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 joy uh May, maybile um this was his viewer choice from months ago so we're fulfilling his request to cover texas chainsaw massacre so joey we hope you enjoy the listen yeah thank you joey that's for you buddy here to joey yeah to joey to joey excellent uh and uh coming up next week we're going to be covering an entirely different film going to have another guest but this film's actually monumental for for Matt and, and Matt and I and that it actually influenced a story that we wrote years ago and I think it's good cuz this isn't like I don't think it's a well uh, a, a film that's been seen nearly enough Mm-mm. we're talking about ghost story I can't wait yeah no one saw this have film. you seen ghost story I don't think I have oh yeah. my gosh this is quintessential fireside ghost story okay fred astaire john hausman it's essentially it's, it's essentially Ken fred astaire yeah. yes it's essentially a is there any dancing <laughs> bing crosby some bing crosby yeah there's Love a bing crosby there's this it's essentially this like group of like these like old hoity gentlemen that like meet and tell ghost stories like together once a year they get together and tell ghost stories yeah oh that's awesome and yeah. then it's where love the one of the ghost already. stories came from oh you it's so good yeah so. and you get some full frontal nudity from a male in there <laughs> so i can't wait for that full dinkus right in your face in 1980 when when, when was this made yeah 1980 81 wow. what's the guy's name craig wasson from must have been cold yeah that, <laughs> nightmare on elm street the dream warriors or he's uh, irish but we're gonna have an, another uh <laughs> We're gonna nobody's have, safe today. We're gonna we're gonna have another guest on that one, and he hasn't and he hasn't seen the film. So this is gonna be this is gonna be a lot of fun. Can you tell everybody who the guest is. No, each it's gonna be a surprise each week until they get here. Okay, gotta Ex- listen to the show. Excellent, That's excellent. Right. Hit us up on Facebook, Instagram. If you like what you're hearing, you know, uh, uh, give us a five star review on Apple Podcasts. Ratings th- those help just kind of you know get you kind of seen by. But in the charts, and that's how I find a lot of my podcasts. It's how I find the Peter Bogdanovich podcast. We'll get to this coming up, but guys, right now, any traction that you can give the podcast would be greatly appreciated. We'll get to that towards the end of October and what that means, but um, it's a big couple weeks coming up here. We'd really appreciate it. Of course. And yeah, so hit us up on that. Let us know the answers to any of your questions. But I got to get going. I got to go put some real ribs out on the smoker, and we're going to have a real barbecue feast tonight. And you guys are invited. Oh my gosh. I'm going to bring a salad, Mark. I, I, I got to go to a thrift shop, get some of those dope 70s threads they were wearing. Those are awesome. <laughs> hey, bring him the shirt. <laughs> all right, you. everybody. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you all next week. Everybody have a good week. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, be sure to leave us a five-star review. We'd greatly appreciate it. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre is property of the Bryanston Distributing Company and Vortex, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.